The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles again this morning back to the book of Acts and chapter 2. And we will read together from Acts 2, from verse 1 all the way to verse number 21. Acts 2, verse 1, all the way to verse number 21. Just another reminder I forgot to mention earlier, there is a Good Friday service here. On Friday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning will be approximately one hour long, and Wes Taylor will be bringing us a message then, and then we'll have our uh, Resurrection Sunday morning service next Sunday morning as well. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes with that great, sorry, let's read that again. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. We have noticed before that the book of Acts is Luke's second volume in his work describing the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is the story of Jesus, his beginning of his ministry. And someone might to conclude, would like to conclude that perhaps at the end of the book of Luke, he had finished his earthly ministry and he had gone back to heaven and that was it. What was happening now was the ministry of the apostles and in fact even the title of the book, which is given to it not by the writer of the book, by men later on, calls it the Acts of the Apostles. But in reality what has happened is Jesus has not finished his ministry He is continuing his ministry, and the book of Acts describes Jesus' continuing ministry through the Holy Spirit and by men, the apostles and disciples and others as they're saved, carrying on. The message this morning for us in a nutshell is this. I want us to behold the glory of Christ continuing his work through his Spirit by his disciples to gather his sheep before the coming storm. There is a storm that is coming. A great and a terrible day is looming in the horizon. It was looming on the horizon in Joel's day, and it is looming on the horizon in Peter's day. And in our day today, in 2019, that great day of the Lord is 2,000 years closer. It's true, brothers and sisters, that as we often think about Pentecost, we think about speaking in tongues, and we think about the great work of God and the great revival that has begun. But equally important in this same text is the promise that the day of the Lord is coming. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is to those who believe it is a great joy because we are filled with the Spirit of God to do the work of God, but also there is a great promise that looms over that those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that the coming of the Holy Spirit spells and promises that God's judgment is just around the corner. And we need to hang on to those two concepts. I want us to see four things this morning. Number one, I want us to see that Christ's work is through spirit-filled witnesses. We looked at that in the past. We'll look just briefly at that this morning. I want us to see, secondly, that Christ's work is to gather all of his sheep together. I want us to see, thirdly, that Christ's work is confirmed from Scripture. And fourthly, Christ's work is to save his sheep from the coming storm. So first of all, Christ's work is through spirit-filled witnesses. And we can see there in verses 1 to 4 that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything that we can see about them from this point onward speaks about them entirely as a result of them being filled with the Spirit. There's nothing of themselves. There's nothing of their talents and their abilities. All that is happening here is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. But I want you to notice also in verse number 7, he says that these men who are hearing this sound are amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They were known in that time and that place to be the lowest of society. They were known as the poor, the ignoble, the uneducated, the despised. They were the lowest people, and people in these city who are coming to see this great sound of what's happening, they're all stunned and amazed. The words that Paul, not Paul, Luke uses 
in bewildered and amazed and astonished and perplexed, they all carry the same idea that these devout Jews are looking at these Galileans and they simply cannot believe their eyes and their ears. That these, the lowest of the low in their minds, are speaking the mighty works of God and everyone is hearing them in his own native language. I want you to notice also the content of their speech in verse number 11. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What was he talking about? What what did he mean by the phrase, the mighty works of God? Well, if you drop your eyes down to verse number 22, you will see there that as Peter begins to preach and expound the text he's just written, He says that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. What were those mighty works that he was talking about? And I think these these disciples, these men who have been with Jesus from the beginning, these men and women, and seeing all that he had done and said over those three years, they rushed out onto the streets filled with the Spirit of God, with Jesus in their eyesight, and they began to speak about all the mighty works of God. Jesus' birth, Jesus' baptism in the river, and he's being filled with the Spirit. They spoke about the words that Jesus said. They were telling the stories. They were telling the things that he did. They spoke about all the great miracles he did. Thousands eating from a few loaves of bread and a handful of fish. Thousands eating as Jesus fed them from seemingly nothing. Maybe they spoke about how the time they're on the boat in the water and the water was rocking and rolling and waving and the waves are crashing over the boat and Jesus stood up and said, shh. And there was a flat calm. They couldn't help themselves. They were full of the Holy Spirit and full of what God had done. And they were speaking the mighty works of God. They spoke of the death of Christ, I'm sure. I'm sure they also spoke of the resurrection of Christ. They had just seen him. Seven days earlier, they stood on the mountaintop and watched him as he rose up out of their sight. They had seen Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. They'd seen those things, and these men, as they rush out in the street, they're telling all these mighty works of God. But notice this. Their content of their ministry points entirely to the mighty works of God and not the mighty works of the apostles and the disciples. You see, we point out often to ourselves that the ministry of the Spirit of God is to point us towards Christ. And this is exactly what's happening here. These men filled with the Spirit of God are describing the mighty works of God. There's nothing of themselves in what they're doing and what they're saying. Notice also in verse 14, it says that while all the speaking, it is one who stands to preach. Not every spirit-filled believer that day was preaching, but they were all speaking. You see, what's the difference? The difference is that one stood up, and on behalf of the other eleven, he lifted up his voice, and he addressed the entire crowd. And when you look at those two parts together, I think what you have to see is that in the earlier part, as they're all rushing out talking, there was one talking to another, and one talking to somebody else, and one over here talking to somebody else. But as they're asking the question, what's going on? What does this mean? Peter stands up and filled with the Spirit of God, he lifts up his voice and he addressed the whole crowd and one preaches. And the point is this. God gives 
his spiritual gifts to whom he desires, as he desires. He gives a diversity of gifts. And I'm going to say this, I'm sorry if I offend somebody, but Pentecostalism has made a great emphasis on one gift. The gift of tongue. Oh, it's all about the gift of tongues. But when you read the scriptures, what you see there, it's not all about the gift of tongues. It's all about the Spirit who gives the gifts in order to point others to Christ. I've heard tragic stories about men who have gone into churches and been told, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. That's blasphemy. It makes speaking in tongues a work you have to do in order to be saved. Praise God, I know a few that said, you're wrong, and walked out. But listen, brothers and sisters, the Spirit gives the gifts to whom He wills as He desires and according to the need of the moment. And right now, Peter stands up in front of the whole group and he stands to speak. By the way, Did you notice the way the Spirit of God inspires Luke to write an incredibly poignant little scene here? Not, what, 50 days earlier. Peter's standing around the courtyard of the high priest and he's warming his hands at the fire. And the girl who has no legal standing says, you're one of him. You're one of them. Oh, no, 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 I'm not, says Peter. Yes, you are, for your speech betrays you. You have the accent of a Galilean. Isn't it cool? Look what they're saying. They're all Galileans. And yet we hear them speaking the mighty works of God. And Peter stands up alongside of the other 11 and unites himself to that group and says, hear the great words of God. Listen as I tell you. I think it's a tremendously poignant scene. They would have looked up and said, hey, we remember you. You denied knowing him. But there's a profound change in Peter now. Filled with the Spirit of God, he speaks for God. I want you to notice something else here. This, as I was studying and reading and meditating on the boat, thinking about this passage, two things really struck out in my mind in this whole text. Notice in verse number 17, it says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit. The idea of pouring out there means that the Spirit is fully experienced. These men and women who have been filled with the Spirit of God are fully experiencing it in every detail. You can put it that way. It's like when you take a balloon, right, and you blow it up. And sometimes you blow up a balloon and you can see, you look at the balloon, you see it's got that sort of faded section and that dark section on the end. You know, not, not all the air is there. There's still room to expand it more. And you take a big breath and you blow a little more. And the balloon is filled up. And you know that at any moment, one more puff of breath and there'll be a big bang and no balloon, right? That balloon is fully filled with the air at that moment. And these disciples have had the Spirit of God poured out on them, and they are fully experiencing it, Him. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit with His power. But I want you to notice something else that struck out in my mind. Notice verse 18. He has gone through in verse 17 and described how there's sons and daughters, young men and old men. And then he says, even on my male servants and female servants. Why is that so significant? The word servant there is the word doulos. And it's a word meaning bond slave or slave. And what it literally means is one whose will is totally consumed with the one that he is serving. 
And the writer says, listen, on my servants. In other words, these men and women who are speaking for God, filled with the Spirit, they are those who belong entirely to the Lord. They have committed and surrendered themselves completely and totally to the will of the Lord in their life. One of the uh, blessings or benefits, if you like, of going on one of those cruise ships that we just got off of is you go for dinner and the, the waiter comes by and they give you everything you want as quickly as they can possibly run around and get it and get it for you. You don't like it that way? No problem. Hey, we order breakfast. And have a, you know, I don't really want all that other stuff. I just, oh, no problem. No problem, ma'am. And she rode down quickly and ran away and came back and gave it to her what she wanted. And it was exactly what she wanted. That's, that waiter knew what it was to be a servant. They knew well, and the service was excellent. They knew well how to understand the will of the one they were serving and to run quickly and get what was wanted and supply it. And these men and women, they're his servants. They're ones whose wills are fully consumed with serving the one who they are serving. They have put themselves in the position of a slave before God. Joel describes them as my servants. Listen, the question that I asked myself as I sat and thought about this and pondered over it was how much of us are living less than fully submitted to the will of God. Let me rephrase that. How much do I live less than fully submitted to the will of God? How many of us decide how it is that we will serve the Lord? You know, when I'm retired, I'll serve you. You know, when I'm financially secure, then I'll come back and I will serve you. You know, when I have more time, then I will serve you. When I feel like it, I will serve you. When I decide it's time, then I will serve you. It's wrong. And I believe one of the reasons why these men and women were so fully experiencing the Spirit of God in their lives was they was decided Christ first, me, never mind. Listen to the words of Scripture. Samuel as a child. Remember him? The Lord comes and says, Samuel. And he jumps up, runs over to Eli. You called? Look at his attitude. Little kid. How many times have you seen a parent call a child with a voice in the middle of the night and they jump out of bed and run down the hallway to see what mommy and daddy want? Most times they do this, right? They're not listening. And Samuel runs to Eli. What do you call? What would you like? I didn't call. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. The Lord calls again, Samuel. Samuel jumps out of bed and says, Eli, Eli, you call me. What is it you want? And after the third time, Eli finally kind of figures out what's going on. He says, no, it's the Lord calling. And the Bible says the Lord came and stood near Samuel. And he said, Samuel, Samuel. And this is what Samuel's words were. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. How many of us open our mouths to pray and say, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying it to me. How many of us come with the decision that we will serve God on our terms? I took with me a book when I was on the ferry uh, ferry ship thing, and uh, it was called uh, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's a John Piper book. It's got 21 little mini biographies. Fantastic. If you don't have it, let me know. I'll get it for you. It is a fantastic book to read. 
I read the stories of David Brainerd and John Bunyan and William Cooper and uh, Martin Luther and Augustine and these men who committed their lives to serving God. David Brainerd, who followed the Lord's leading, preaching the gospel to the American native Indians for seven years. The whole time he was doing it, he was spitting up blood from tuberculosis and consumption. He died at 29 years of age. And his story, his writings, his journals, his biography has influenced an entire generation, actually generations of missionaries after that. God greatly used a man who was totally consumed with serving the Lord no matter what the cost. I'll tell you, more than once I sat there sitting on the deck of a boat and put the book down and just kind of groaned in my heart. How quickly do I pull back? How quickly do I stop and say, you know, Lord, I'll serve you, but, you know, there's a line. There's a limit. And these men accomplished great things because they served God without limit. It's like your friends in Cambodia, brother, going there and willing to serve at great cost to themselves. John Bunyan, who voluntarily, voluntarily remained in prison for 12 years, same kind of prisons. If his wife hadn't come and brought him food, he wouldn't have eaten. He made, sat in a cell and he made leather work and, and made leather laces for shoes and sold them out the windows of his cell. His jailer said, the door is open and unlocked. You walk out the door if you want to. All you must do is commit yourself that you will not preach anymore. And his young wife, his second wife, his first wife had died, stood before the judges and said, Oh, sirs, you don't understand. He would sooner stop breathing than stop preaching. He was willing. See, those men were totally consumed with serving the Lord. Paul, as he wrote the Scriptures over and over again, he said, Paul, an apostle, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave. It was his will that was consumed with serving the one he was serving, God himself. And these men and women going out into the streets, willing to speak to whoever would listen, telling the mighty works of God, they were his bond servants and his slaves. That's what the word means. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking myself, and I'll let you listen. How much of us stop and pull our hands back from the plow and say, you know, that's a little uncomfortable. You know, I'm not getting paid enough. I say that one to my shame. How many of us stop and pull back? God greatly used these men and women. Two or three pages later, you know what you're going to find? The courts are laying them down and beating them with rods 40 times. And they got out and they walked away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Why is it we don't see our world impacted for the gospel the way it was in their day? Oh, it's a different day, you know. No, it's not. The same human heart filled with the same sinful desires and urges, the same rebellion against God existed today as it did then. Brothers and sisters, it is God working through weak, poor men and women whose one ability was availability. So we will go where you send us. We will speak what you give us. We will point to Christ any way we can. 
And God used them greatly for his glory. Behold, look at the glory of God in his grace. Think about the grace of God. In these men and women's lives, as he used them, he didn't use the high and mighties in the temple. He didn't use the high priests. He didn't use all those others. He didn't use the wealthy ones, not yet. He used Galileans, the despised, the poor, and the weak, and the ignoble, that he might use them, and the power seen in them wouldn't be misassociated with what they were before. The power seen in them would be entirely attributed to God himself. That's the glory of God's grace using men and women. But be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. God does not need our perfection of talent, ability, education, social standing, or anything else. God uses us in grace every single time. You can testify. God does not use Brian because Brian has something that everybody else doesn't have. In fact, God often chooses, I can say this standing alongside of him as preacher and pastor, God uses men who are weak and failing and broken so that the power of his grace will shine through everything they do and say. If I were God, I would not have picked me. Don't laugh. If you were God, you wouldn't have picked you either. But God in grace... He picked us, he chose us, and he uses us. The question is, are we willing to say, I'm available? Here am I, Lord, send me. Isaiah, remember him up in the temple? The seraphim takes a coal off the altar and puts it against Isaiah's lips and the burn there, and it, it stings and burns and melts the skin on his lips. In order for him to actually speak, it's going to tear that burn open. And he says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. And God in tremendous grace used him, sent him out to preach the gospel. Oh, by the way, Isaiah, you'll preach the rest of your life and nobody will listen. That's a commission. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you forget everything else I say this morning, remember this. God in grace uses those who submit themselves fully to his will and his working in their lives. I think it was either... Spurgeon or Moody, that one said to the other, I can't remember who the story is correctly, one said to the other, this world has yet to see what God can do with a man whose will is fully consumed with God. What an impact, brothers and sisters, we could make in this community, in our lives, in our neighbors' lives, in our workmates' lives, if we lived like these men and women, willing to be slaves to the living God filled with the Spirit, and going out and opening our mouths and speaking the mighty works of God. Secondly, I want you to know it's Christ's work to bring His sheep into His fold. Remember John 10, 16? Jesus said, I have other sheep not of this fold. I must bring them in also, so there will be one fold and one shepherd. Now notice in verse 5 of chapter 2 it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. They were men there from every nation. Now that's probably hyperbole. Obviously Luke couldn't say every nation under heaven realistically because some of those nations hadn't yet been discovered by those peoples. But what he's doing is really cool. 
He's showing the scope of the gospel isn't just the Jews themselves. It's from every nation. And God in his grace, again, his sovereign grace, has brought these Jews from all over the world and gathered them there into Jerusalem. And they've come for Pentecost and they've come for Passover and they've enjoyed those feasts. And God's brought them there and they're all there devout men. They were devout men. I stripped over that for a while. What do you mean by that? They were devout Jews. They knew devotion to God on a level that most of us have never even heard about. They were there absolutely devoted to God. But listen, one thing that this text makes absolutely clear is this. Devotion to God does not save you. I'll say that again in a different way. Coming to church every week does not save you. Reading your Bible through three, four, five, six times a year does not save you. Faithfully giving 10, 12, 15, 80% of your income does not save you. Memorizing the catechism, memorizing verses will not save you. These men, devout Jews who were gathered there, they needed to hear the gospel. They needed to hear it from the most unlikely and disrespected source to them. They needed to hear from the lowest of the low that God required them to repent and believe the gospel. But notice also the grace of God. He went to those men first. Those men were devout men gathered together. They were from every nation. They were from every nation under the sun. And it also, notice this, some have tried to say that that verse foretells a later point when the gospel will go to the Gentiles. But that's not what Luke says. He says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. So those gathered, they were all Jewish men and women gathered there to hear, to be a part of the, the festivals and the feasts. And God has brought them there that they might hear the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel goes forth to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so the Jews here are hearing the gospel first. But it reminds us in those phrases there that the scope of the gospel is for every single nation. And brothers and sisters, this thing with Isle of Pines, that island we went to when there was no... Uh, Protestant testimony for the gospel at all there. Keeps sticking in my mind. How many other islands and nations and groups are there around the world that do not have a witness for the gospel? The work isn't done, brothers and sisters. The work's still going on in Cambodia and China. The work has to go on in Tahiti and Numea and New Caledonia and wherever else that's still left to be done. The gospel has to go forward. But even this moment here, we see a foretelling of what must happen. The gospel must go to all generations. I want you to know something else about these men that God is opening their eyes to see the gospel. That God is drawing to himself. Notice in verse 6 it says, At this sound, the multitude came together. And what we have in that little phrase there is the glory of Jesus Christ who drew those devout men from every nation together together to the sound that accompany the coming and the pouring out of the Spirit. It is God alone that must draw men to himself. You say, well, then why do we do evangelism? Well, that's a good question. 
we do evangelism because God commanded us to do evangelism and God uses us when we do evangelism, but it is God who works in the heart. It's God who reaches down. And one verse, I think it's about, talking about Lydia in the book of Acts, it says, God opened the eyes of her heart to believe. And God opens the eyes of the hearts of each one of us. It is God himself who draws us to hear and draws us to open our eyes and see the truth of the gospel. I think every single person in the room who knows Jesus as their Savior can say, I remember the day when my eyes were open and I saw the truth of the gospel and I believed. Look at the glory of God as he is drawing these men to hear, to hear the sound, to see what's going on. Notice again those words describe their reaction to it. They were bewildered in verse 6 and and amazed and astonished in verse number 7, and they were perplexed in verse number 12. They're all words similar in their meaning. That means that they were awestruck. They were overwhelmed. They saw what was going on. They just Their breath was taken away. They had no words left to speak as they saw these Galileans preaching the gospel and speaking the mighty works of God. They were confronted in reality, with Galileans filled to the overflowing with the Holy Spirit, speaking in their own native languages and telling the mighty works of God. What they were so stunned and unable to comprehend was that it was Galileans of all people who were speaking to them. But notice also the three questions they ask. In verse number 7, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? Verse number 8, and then at the end, verse number 11, that finishes the question, says, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God? How is it? Are these Galileans? How is it they are telling us about the mighty works of God? And the final question they ask, the most important of all, what does this mean? But did you notice who they asked? Look what it says in verse number 12. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Saying to one another. They literally had so little respect for the Galileans, even though they were hearing them say all these things. They looked at one another and said, What does this mean? And they were startled. They were amazed. But notice also with great sadness, verse number 13, it says, Others mocking, said they're filled with new wine. And you say, why is that such an important point? It's important for this because it shows the true spiritual state of these men. You see, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. In other words, these men are standing there, and they, even though as devoted as they were, Jewish as they were, in the, in the city for the feast, Pentecost and Passover, they're watching what's happening and they're mocking because the things of the Spirit of God are, are foreign to them. All their devotion could not save them. All their being there for that, those feasts could not save them. And when they saw the real work of the Spirit of God among them, they begin to mock and say, they're drunk. They're filled with new wine. But I want you to notice the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is continuing His work. He's using Spirit-filled men and women. He's working through His bondservants who are totally surrendered to Him. He's drawing men from every nation to Himself to hear this great message. 
and he's continuing his work, and he confirms it from Scripture. Notice what Peter does. He stands up with the eleven, united with them, and he begins to speak. And the first thing he does is he says, this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet, and he immediately connects what's going on right in front of them with the Word of God. He needs them to see this is God at work, and God confirms His witness and His work from Scripture. I would add to say, the God will always, the work of God will always have both as its foundation and its explanation the Word of God itself. So everything that we do for God, it's founded on the Word of God and it has to be explained from the Word of God. So Peter gives that explanation, talks about the last days in verse number 17. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. There's more I could say about this, but I want to skip over that and just go to the end point. Last point is this. The glory of Christ saving his sheep from the wrath which is to come. I mentioned earlier that the tragedy in a lot of our thinking about Pentecost, we focus it all on the tongues and the speaking in tongues and hearing the languages and all that sort of stuff. But notice that Lowe's last verses, 19, 20, and 21. He's speaking about the great day of the Lord. Now let's read it together again. Verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. It says, No, verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you go back to Joel 2 and look that up, you'll see he's cut a big chunk of text right out of that quote. And he's taken the day, the everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's brought it together with the first part. He's making a point that the day of the Lord is coming, but the main point of his message is those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. The question is, what is he talking about when he talks about the day of the Lord, a great and magnificent day? The day of the Lord is the day of Christ's return in which there is both great judgment and great salvation. In fact, if you read those verses there, 19 and... Did I read them? I did, okay. Memory slipping. If you read those verses there, you see those events in the heavens, right? The blood and the fire, the vapor of smoke, the moon turned to blood and and the sun not giving its light, all those things there. The day of the Lord is such a massive and cataclysmic day when God sets his feet upon the earth again as a conquering, judging king, that the the effects on the elements and the environment are huge. The Old Testament talks in number space about the day of the Lord, and I'll give you just a sampling of them. This is what the Bible says about this coming day of the Lord. It says in Isaiah 13, verse 6, it's a day of destruction from God. In Jeremiah 46 and verse 10, it's a day of vengeance of the Lord against his enemies. In Ezekiel 30 and verse 3, it's a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. In Joel 2 verse 1, it says, He calls them to blow a trumpet, sound the alarm, let all the inhabitants tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's a day, again, Jeremiah 46, 10. It's a day of vengeance of the Lord against his enemies. What scares you? Darkness. Some people find darkness very scary. Water. 
People are afraid of water. Snakes and spiders. I know a lot of people who are afraid of snakes and spiders. What really scares you? The Old Testament prophets saw this coming day of the Lord as such a massive and cataclysmic day with such a huge event that the elements of the weather would change. The earth's environment would change because of it. it was a day to be feared, a day to, to be terrified. It was a day when God would come and judge the inhabitants of the earth, a day when God's wrath would be poured out on all those who do not believe. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament about the day of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's unexpected. It will happen when we least expect it. In 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the Bible says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will burn up. The earth and the works that are done will be exposed. Everything will be laid bare before God and God's wrath will be poured out upon all that do not believe. 1 Peter 1 verses 5 to 7, the Bible says this, Who by God's power, talking about believers, by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying the day of the Lord comes, there will be great wrath for all those who do not know God. But for those who know the Lord, there will be great salvation. You see, we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved, a future thing. And the last great day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and sets his feet upon the earth and gathers all the nations before him, and those that know the Lord will be gathered to his right side. And those who do not know the Lord will be pushed away to his left side. And he will look at some of them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. And Peter is saying, listen, the pouring out of the Spirit of God is his last great event. And it promises and points forward to a coming day when Jesus will return and the nation will be judged and those who are found under the wrath of God will experience the full weight of God's unmitigated wrath. He will take, as the Bible says, vengeance on his enemies. But the very same day holds a tremendous promise, brothers and sisters. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who know what it is to believe in Him and repent of sin, He'll be gathered to Him. And what Peter's trying to get across to these men who are standing in front of Him, devout men, no doubt, but none knowing of the Lord their God, He's trying to get across and listen, there is a day of judgment coming and there is salvation available. If we would return, you go back to the end of the story in later in Acts chapter 2. What's he say to them? Flip over the page. We'll look down very quickly. He says in verse number 36, notice he says, just back in verse number 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verse 36, Peter sums up his message. What's he say? 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, who? Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the point he's trying to make to them is the coming of the Spirit of God is showing them that the day of the Lord is coming and that those who call upon the Lord, who cry out to God for forgiveness and repent of sin, they will know the Lord has saved them. And not only will he save them, he will also give them the same gift of the Holy Spirit. And they will live lives to serve God as these men are. What's all this mean for us? We're sitting here 2019, 2019 years separated from this situation, this event. God has poured out His Holy Spirit and He has been pouring out His Holy Spirit on believers ever since this day. And this day is now 2019 years closer to when Christ will return in judgment and in salvation together. Salvation for His people and judgment for His enemies. And the message of gospel that went forward in those days must still go forward in our day. The day of the Lord is coming, brothers and sisters, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What's going through your mind? I wish he'd shut up so we can go home. I wish it wasn't so hot in here. What's going through your mind? Pardon me for being a little bit blunt and very direct. What goes through your mind when you hear words like that? The day of the Lord is coming. Some of you are saying, you know, I've heard that story for 40, 50, 60 years. And I'm starting to doubt it. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, you know what? I've heard that before. And you know what? I'm so familiar with these stories. I can read over them and my eye just sweeps across the words and they go back and forth and they bounce off my eyes and float away into nothing. And it's just something we do. The Bible says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When was the last time you sat up waiting for the time the thief would arrive? Well, you didn't know when the thief was coming. You couldn't plan for it. You couldn't sit up and wait for him because you had no idea when he was going to come. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, the day of the Lord might be tomorrow. It might be before we get to the baptism tonight. I don't like the idea of scaring people. I love the idea of Scripture, the truth of Scripture weighing down on a heart weighing down on the souls of men and women and impressing greatly upon the souls of men and women the reality that God is an angry God. God is a holy God and a God is a just God. And God does not tolerate our sin like we do. And brothers and sisters, there is a day of reckoning coming. Anyone's name not found written in the book of life has no future, no hope. And you can come into this church week after week. You can sit in those chairs and you can sing the hymns. You could even sing them in parts and sing them far more beautifully than I could ever try to sing them. 
You can come in and sit and listen. The words go in one ear and right out the other. You can come and close your eyes when we pray. But when the lights go out at night, and the Spirit of God comes and begins to provoke and push, do you know the Lord? The day of the Lord isn't just some mythical thing. It can't be written off as some figurative statement in Scripture. It is real. God will stand in the person of Christ on this earth. And He will gather the nations and He will demand an accounting. And you know, some of those men are going to be so devout, will come to Christ and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and the other thing? We were so devoted to you, Lord. You know, we went around the world and we handed out gospel tracts. Nothing wrong with handing out gospel tracts. I do that too. You know, Lord, we were so devoted to you. We went to church every single Sunday. We never missed one. And the Lord will, in effect, say, so what? I never knew you. See, it's not devotion to Christ that saves a man. It's coming in repentance of sin and saying, I am a sinner. I'm lost. There's no hope for me. God's judgment on my life is absolutely true and correct. God's judgment on my life that if He comes home this moment, this right now, I will go into a lost eternity. But Peter stands up that that. Pentecost morning and he preaches this message and he reads this verse and he very particularly jumped to the last verse there. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you go home and you turn out the light and you go to bed, what does your heart tell you that you are before God? My plea with you is that you will cry out to God to save you. You say, why do I need to be saved? Because of the sin that you and I commit. We were born in sin. We sin because we like to. We sin because we want to. And we sin because we, in some senses, can't help it. We're just driven along by that nature inside of us. But we love it all the same. And that sin, God will not tolerate. You can walk out of here and never come back. I plead with you that you don't do that. But what are you going to do when you when God gathers the nations? You will not escape that gathering. And you will stand before God. And you won't say, hey, I'm on the Lord's side and jump over to the right. He will reach out and take you and put you where you belong. Brother and sister, I'm, I'm pleading with you. One of the things that scares me so much is that we are such a cultural group that the reality of the gospel has slipped away. It's life and death. It's heaven and hell. Cry out to God to be saved. Cry out to God by the power of His Holy Spirit, would give you the faith to believe. Turn away from sin. You know in your heart before God what sin 
that he is talking about to you. Turn away from it and cry out to God to be forgiven. And the Bible promises you. Listen to what he said. What Peter says. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of God. You will be forgiven. God will adopt you into his family and call you son and daughter and fill you with his spirit that you might live to witness for Christ. God has not finished his work. As long as the day tarries that Jesus is going to come back, he's not finished his work, brother and sister. There is a work to be done. We need to get busy and get on with it. For us as believers who are sitting here this morning, I'm going to ask myself the question again, and you can listen and answer for yourself. Are you fully submitted and surrendered to the living God that you will go wherever He sends you and speak whatever He gives you, enduring whatever He lays before you? Am I? It's easy to say, oh yeah, of course, I'm all in there. Until you stand in Cambodia and look at the deplorable conditions that they're in. Until you stand inside a massive Roman Catholic cathedral and think about preaching the gospel, knowing that the moment I open my mouth to preach the gospel in Isle of Pines, I will have an entire Catholic community that will come down on me like a ton of bricks because the last thing they want is someone preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. They don't want that. It's easy to say it when we're sitting in a group of people like this, but brothers and sisters, when you're alone before God, with the Word of God open before you, can you truly say, I am your servant? Or in the words of Mary, behold, your servant. Let it be to me as you will. David Brainerd said it and died at 29 years of age. John Bunyan said it and spent 12 years in a jail cell. Thousands of Cambodian and Chinese pastors and Christians in the Eastern Asian countries have died unknown and unremembered because they said it. That's where it stands. The problem for us, brothers and sisters, we live an air-conditioned, comfortable environment. We can have church here going on for years and nobody cares and nobody notices. It'll be a whole lot different when they are clamoring at the door to take us outside and put us in jail. It'll be a whole lot different, brothers and sisters, when they're looking to put us to death because we preach Christ. I'll leave it there. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray together and then we'll be done. He says you're standing. Just to remind you again, there is a baptism service tonight. Three of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to take that incredible step of obedience to follow Christ. To be willing to go wherever He sends them and do whatever He gives them to do. If you can't be here, I plead with you, if you at all can be here. But if you can, I plead with you to pray for them because the reality is tomorrow they will come under some attack. 
the devil will try and do everything he can to divert them from the way. If at all possible, brothers, to just be here tonight to encourage them. Let's pray. Loving Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks again for the tremendous grace of God. Father, when we consider the holiness of God, majestic, infinite holiness, the beauty of the Lord in His holiness, Father, we in a sense would feel inclined to cover our faces and turn our heads away. But Father, we know that the grace of God has covered us. We have been washed clean in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can look up and look full into the face of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we can behold His glory. And Father, we thank You that You have not finished Your work. Father, Your work goes on around the world. Father, we think about uh, the fellows that Brian and Wes and Ian worked with in Cambodia, all those pastors and teachers going out to preach the gospel in Cambodia. Father, many of them going through suffering and difficulty that we don't even understand. Father, we lift them up to you and we plead with you, O God, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Father, give them the strength and the grace to endure the suffering that is surely coming their way. Father, we give you thanks. We praise you, O God, for raising up men like David Brainerd and John Bunyan and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and all those other men, William Cooper. Father, men that you use greatly through great times of suffering and struggle and difficulty. Father, we look down the page of the Scripture right in front of us and we see the stories of Peter and James and John, the other disciples, and how they were beaten for their faith. Paul, five times beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead, in the deep, a day and a night. And Father, through their weakness, Your grace shone through, and in their weakness, Your strength was perfected. And it was displayed to all that could see that it was not because of them, it was because of You that they could do the things they did and speak the things they spoke. And Father, I am so well aware that to preach a sermon like this in a comfortable air-conditioned church like this one, surrounded by friends and family, is easy. But Father, in my heart of hearts, I know that there will come a day when to preach a message like this will result in imprisonment and worse. And it will be in this country and around the world. Father, I cry out to You. I plead with You, O God, for every single person in this room, oh God, that you would greatly work in all of our lives. Father, that we would be totally and completely surrendered to your will. That we could say with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servants here. Father, I cry out to you that you would do a great work in this church and through this church. Father, I cry out, we cry out to you as a church that you would see thousands in this neighborhood and this community saved and reached for the gospel of Christ. Oh God, I pray that you would not let us fall into the terrible trap of being a country club church on a hill, indifferent to the world around, 
insensitive to the call of God to preach the gospel to this neighborhood and the nations. Father God, do a work in us. Don't let us loose. Father, by the preaching of the Word of God and the prayers of the saints, I pray, O God, that You would change us all. That we would be a people consumed by You. Father, the the picture of Moses in the desert and the burning bush comes to mind. Lord God, we would be like those bushes. Consumed and yet not consumed by the presence of the Spirit of God in us shining brightly, heat coming off of us, the heat of the warmth of God's love for sinners. Father, I pray that there would be a work here in this church. I plead with You, O God, that You would do a work in my heart. Father, for Wes and Poovin and I as the elders, do a work in each of our hearts, O God. Change us, O God. Give us a passion and a zeal for the gospel. Refresh and revive it. Father, for the deacons in this church, I plead with you, O God, that you would revive and refresh their zeal for the Lord. Father, we would be a people on fire for God. Father, for everybody in this church, from the young to the very old, Father, I pray that you would use us. Father, you're not done with us. I'm convinced of that. Father, there is growth still necessary in every one of our lives. Father God, I plead with you that you would cause that growth to happen. That we would go through the suffering and the trial and the difficulties that would shape us and make us and form us into the image of Christ. Father, I plead with you that you would give us the strength to continue to follow. Lord, for... Jeff and Peter and Rosemary tonight as they come, O God, to take that tremendous and marvelous step of obedience to go through the waters of baptism and, Father, to display to the world the reality of the truth that they have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the grace of God. Father, I ask you for strength for them. Father, may their conviction, their faith, not waver. And Father, as the difficulty will come that will follow that step of obedience, Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to endure, to follow you steadfast no matter what the cost. We, Father, we thank you for this service today. Father, thank you again for Brian's report on the work in Cambodia. And Father, we pray that it would go on. That those men and women that have been Time has been invested to teach them the truths of God, that they would take them and preach and teach and build up the church. Father, you would build up the church through them. Father, we ask you for all these things. We give you thanks again, O God, for a time together in the Word and in fellowship and in worship. We ask you, O God, for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.